today. Uh, we're going to be looking, as we have been for the last several weeks, even months, in the book of Colossians. Today we'll be in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. I'm moving a bit slower today because I had a fantastic dinner at Brahms in Hillsboro yesterday, and that stays with you for a bit. And this is notable because while I was there, I ran into some colleagues from Mary Harden Baylor who had been watching the Texas Rangers get pounded uh, yesterday. And then after that, uh, after talking to them for a few minutes, I saw Brother Eddie and Kelly and their clan come in, having done the same thing, and was sharing with them that Karen and I went up to Longview uh, because it is my aunt's uh, 80th birthday. And in conversation with Eddie, he said, <clears throat> so John, what's an 80th birthday party like? Like, what is, you know, what is that like? And so I, I told him a little bit about it, but uh, his question stuck with me because I was struck, there were, it was all family. Uh, so lots of uh, my parents were there, aunts, uncles, and then a ton of cousins. And the cousins and I uh, began discussing something we observed, and what we observed is that our parents were not treating the grandchildren the way they had treated us <laughs> as children. That does deserve an amen. Our parents were not treating the grandchildren the way they had treated us. In fact, there was this incredible transformation that as we compared notes, we observed, and I, I experienced this uh, myself. I remember many uh, decades ago, one of my uh, kids misbehaved, and so I did what, as a parent, uh, I felt best. I took them into another room, spanked them, brought them back, and mom, mom told me, she said, I don't think you should have done that. You know, that's really not appropriate. And I said, where was this revelation about 20 years ago? Because I distinctly recall some trips to the other room with you and with dad uh, as, as well. And so it was this transformation that I'd seen that I could not believe. Well, Paul is sharing with us a transformation that's pretty amazing uh, to see as well. And so I would ask that you stand as we uh, read in honor of God's Word today, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thank you. Please be seated. As we've looked at the book of Colossians, we've seen that Paul is addressing a congregation made up of brand new believers. 
And some large part of that community of faith came out of a Jewish background. They had been raised according to the laws and commands of the Old Testament and were now working to understand what new life in Christ meant coming out of that background. The second group of brand new baby believers in the church at Colossae was a group that was coming out of what we would call the pagan worship, those who worshiped the gods of Rome and Greece and who were bringing that background into the church. And so Paul has worked hard to spend about two and a half chapters talking about all the stuff they need to get rid of, all the things they need to change. And now in chapter three, about halfway through the chapter, it's like a, a hinge that the door of Colossians pivots on. He begins talking to them not about the stuff they need to get rid of, but rather the stuff they need to take on. In fact, he uses that language, as we'll see in a minute. He said, and and Brother Logan uh, covered this last week, in verses 3 through 9 through 11, Paul tells them to get rid of lust, anger, deceit, pride, all of these negative things. Now we're going to see he tells them what to take on, what to replace those negative attributes with. N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians says that it's like in the middle of chapter 3, the reader emerges from the fog and into the light of God's grace, leaving the world that had been in place with Paul directing us to what this new world looks like. And so, in a very important way, the book of Colossians serves as a wonderful illustration of the gospel story. It starts out with the challenges and difficulties, the brokenness of this world in which we live and how that brokenness was playing out in the lives of the church members at Colossae. And then after that encounter with Christ, Paul says things change, life is different, and the old expectations and the old behaviors now should be transformed into something new. And so Paul begins to focus ahead on what this new life that believers have taken on should look like and what it should be a part of. And so that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. In some important ways, Paul becomes a grandparent. He experiences this transformation in his own life, and now he is sharing uh, pictures of what that life looks like with us. Have you been around grandparents who show pictures? Like, you can't get away from them. And now with their phones, they can show you a million of them. And so Paul does something very similar, as we will see. He shows us pictures of what new life in Christ looks like. And he says, look at this. This is how you should be. This is what it should look like. So the first thing that Paul shares is that the church is God's new creation people. The church is God's new creation people. We see this in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The powerful words that Paul shares here had to hit the church members hard and should hit us hard as well. Paul is telling them, this group, a large group of Gentile believers, you are God's chosen people. Now, why is that important? 
Well, in the Old Testament, God was very clear who His chosen people were. They were the descendants of Abraham. They were the Hebrews whose story dominates the story of the Old Testament. As God worked through this particular people to accomplish His mission on the earth, and He called them holy. We see this again throughout the Old Testament in books like Exodus and Leviticus, where the people of God were set apart as holy, different. The way they behaved and treated one another and treated others was to be different, and that they were chosen. They were the ones, as the prophet said later, out of all the peoples of the earth, God chose us as His people. And so Paul takes that language that used to apply only to Israel, and he shares that with the New Testament church. You are God's holy people, he says. You are God's chosen people. Out of all the people on the planet, God has chosen you. And so what a powerful encouragement that is, both on a corporate level, as we think about who we are as First Baptists, and on an individual level. God has chosen you. God loves you. Out of all the people on the planet, God has chosen you. And there's something very special and very particular about that. We are holy and dearly loved. And he says that with that comes particular responsibilities. That is, the fact that we are loved by God, the fact that God has set us apart from others means we have things to do. There are certain expectations that we have. Just as parents, we teach our kids that, you know, you're my son, you're my daughter, so there are things that I expect of you that I don't expect from others. So when we're in the store and some other kid is acting the fool, I, I, they're not my child, and sometimes I don't say anything about it. But my kids, they are expected to behave in a particular way because of that relationship. In the same way, Paul is telling the church at Colossae, I have expectations for how you are to behave, what you are to do. We are called to service and to serve God, and we should look and act in a particular way. I'm going to say two words that are quite divisive, so I'll just say those. I'll, I'll frame it that way before I say these words, and the two divisive words I will say are the words Tony Romo. <laughs> Tony Romo, many of you may be familiar, uh, was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys who was notable, who was impressive, who, who achieved many, many things, uh, but was not ultimately successful in winning, at least in the postseason for the Dallas Cowboys. He was there from 03 to about 16, where he led the team, and, uh, and again, divisive because he, they never won the big one under him. But he said something really interesting at the end of his career. Uh, he said this, and it stuck with me. He said, you know, so his body began to break down. He ended up being out, uh, injured often, and uh, ultimately in 2017, he retired from professional football. And he said something really interesting. He said, you know, the frustrating thing is, he said, now I know what the other team is trying to do out there every time I go, but my body can't pull it off. Earlier, my body could pull it off, but I didn't know enough. He said, it's like you get the answers to the exam at the end of your career when you can't do anything about it. 
is how he put it. And I love that. And so what Paul does, as the grandparent showing us pictures, is he's giving us the answer to the exam already. What he's saying is new creation believers look and act in a certain way, and then he begins to describe what that looks like. And he uses the language of clothing. He said, you need to clothe yourself in these following characteristics. And so the idea is every time you're out, every time you're interacting with other people, you should be behaving in this particular way, that these activities, these characteristics that you need to have should be so closely identified with who you are that they're like the clothes that you're wearing, that you become recognizable because of these characteristics. So let's take a brief look at each of these characteristics that he shares. He says, clothe yourself with compassion, first of all. Compassion is this deep caring for other people. In fact, caring more for others in interactions than you may care about yourself. One of my favorite things about this life that I have is I get to be married to Karen Vassell, who is a remarkable individual and exhibits compassion in all that she does. And my favorite Karen Vassar story is the following. Several years ago, uh, I was, uh, Karen and I were out shopping, and I ran into a student that I had had about 10 years before in a class, and so I introduced them, and then Karen got quiet and was watching the interaction, and I'm talking to this student, asking him how he's doing, and he had a family and was telling me all this. And at one point in the conversation, in a completely um, inorganic way, borderline rude way, Karen interrupts the conversation and looks at him and says, "Um, you don't know me, but I'm a nurse, and have you been feeling okay lately? There was an odd pause. And then she said, have you been feeling tired? Have you had like like headaches recently? And then he kind of looked around. He said, well, doesn't, doesn't everybody feel that way? Was his comment? And she took his hands and and pushed on his fingernails, and they were white. And she said, it looks like you're you're a little pale. It doesn't look like you're getting great blood flow to your fingers. You may want to check and see a doctor, she said. And this was, from his perspective, a very odd and awkward conversation. (laughs) And here's what I love about it is… Karen's compassion for this man that she just met was stronger than her desire to avoid an awkward conversation, that she wanted to be sure that he took care of himself. I never heard back from him again. I don't know how the story ends, uh, but that's always struck me about her, this idea that our compassion and our love for others should motivate us even beyond what our own comfort level and desires are. He also tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility, as Rick Warren describes, is not thinking less of ourselves, but rather thinking more of others, treating others in a particular way where we're not lifting up ourselves, but lifting up them. He shares with us that we should be wearing gentleness, this idea of, of power that's under control, power that's not released but rather something that we can keep in check and deploy in very particular ways. 
And lastly, he says we need to have patience. We should not be known as those who fly off the handle, those who uh, fire back as soon as we are fired upon. He tells us to wear these like a garment. These are the clothes by which we should be known. These are important in our lives and need to be so much a part of us that people recognize us because we take on these characteristics. Again, Paul showing us a picture saying this is what a new creation believer looks like. They have these characteristics. And then just in case we think that we only have to worry about ourselves and take care of ourselves, he says, bear with one another. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us as church members. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, you need to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So he reminds us that God has greatly forgiven us and that our role is to forgive others, those around us. It reminds me of the uh, amazing story that uh, Jesus shared in Matthew 18, the story of the unforgiving servant. You remember this story? Uh, it's set up by Peter asking Jesus, how many times do I, have to forgive, do I have to forgive someone who's wearing me out, he said. And seven times? Do I have to forgive them that many times? Do I have to um, uh, extend myself all these times? And Jesus famously said, no. It's worse than that. It's not just seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he told this story to help us keep things in perspective. He said a master had a servant who borrowed a few thousand dollars from him, I'm sorry, a few million dollars from him, and couldn't pay it. And so the master was going to uh, throw him in prison, and the servant pleaded and said, please let me uh, take a long time to pay this off. I don't have it right now. And the master forgave this from him. And then he turned around and someone owed him a few thousand dollars. So the master owed, uh, was owed millions by the servant. This servant was owed thousands by this other friend. And he had the guy thrown in jail because he hadn't paid the several thousand. And the master was furious and said, don't you understand that when you've been forgiven much, Jesus said, that should put you in the posture of forgiving others. And so this idea of forgiveness with us as believers because becomes very important in our understanding of what life looks like in the New Testament church. Because there are occasions, like all families, where we uh, have disagreements, where we rub elbows with one another, where we feel pinched because of the behaviors of others in our family and others in our church family as well. And so, Paul says, God says to us, take on these characteristics, and then when someone offends you, be at peace. Be at peace with one another and forgive them. And oh, by the way, God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you, he says. So that is what it looks like to be New Testament, new creation believers in Christ. The second thing Paul shares, us, shares with us is that the church body, he's talking to the church at Colossae and he's talking to First Baptist Church Belton, the church body is bound together. 
We see this in verses 14 and 15. And over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful, he says. Over all these virtues put on love. This reminds me of his earlier words in 1 Corinthians 13. Over all these virtues, which he has described as like clothes, put on these virtues like clothes, and then put on this garment over them. I have uh, uh, a a few suits that I wear and sometimes have to wear them to conferences and things like that. Some of these conferences on occasion are held in the northern climes, and some of these locations, in winter, it gets pretty cold, and suit jackets aren't particularly warm. And so, I had to get this outer coat that I put on over that uh, suit. When I'm wearing that, so when I get to wherever I go, I take off that outer garment and then wear my suit. This is a very boring illustration, but I think it does illustrate this point, that all these characteristics, gentleness, humility, patience, all of these things that God asks of us, He says, drape them all in love. Wear love as an overcoat over them. So as you're doing all these things, be mindful, he says, over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It is possible, Jesus points out, to reduce all of God's commands to two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's this image of love as this overcoat that we're to wear that really brings that to the forefront. The church is all in, we've been taught, and Paul's language here reflects that. We are all to be bound together in perfect unity, he says. We are members of one body, and the only reason this body of believers works is because there are differences among us. If we were all the same, this would be a weakened body. It'd be boring as well. But God has called us in our diversity to come together and be unified. Again, Paul talks about this in Corinthians, where he talks about the what use would it be for a hand to say uh, to the body, well, I don't get to walk around like the feet do, so I'm out. I'm going to do whatever I want. Well, it's ludicrous. It's absurd. And in the same way, God says He has called us to be parts of this body. In 1 Corinthians 12, he puts it this way, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So God calls us to this new life in Christ. He calls us to be united together, covered over by love, and then he ends this section talking to the church with some very practical, direct things that they are to do. Look at what he says in verses 16 and 17. He tells us that a church teaches, a church admonishes, and a church sings. Three different things, he says. Teaches, admonishes, and sings. Listen to what he says. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father 
through him. Teach, admonish, sing. We have a handle on teaching, right? We know what that means. That means that a part of our time in worship together is to study God's Word, the proclamation of the Word. That's what we're doing right now. We're studying together. We're reading together. uh, We're listening to hear what God is teaching us in uh, these verses. In a few minutes, we will depart from here. We'll go to Sunday school where, again, we will continue the teaching of God's Word. And there are groups that meet throughout the week, other times that we get together to study, and we rightly hold that up as something really important that we do in the church, is we study God's Word. And it's important that we read as we listen to people teaching Scripture and make sure that what they're teaching is what it says here. We are commanded to teach one another. The second part of this that he shares is to admonish one another. We don't do that as formally. I think a lot of times we are admonished by the words that are shared in a message. But I think it's interesting that he shares that we admonish, right? We know what admonish means, don't we? To confront one another, to challenge one another on occasion, to correct one another. And Paul sets this as an important part of the life of the church. But it's interesting to me how he puts that after he says we should have all these characteristics. Because if the person who is admonishing me is doing so as someone who is patient and humble and kind and gentle and loving, well, I know they've got my best interests at heart. And so I'm going to listen to that because there is that relationship there. When a perfect stranger on I-35 <clears throat> complains about my driving, I don't, I don't, I don't care. <clears throat> when a close and dear family member mentions something about my driving, I listen a little more closely anyway to that because of that relationship and because I know that she has my best interests in heart. In fact, I thought about not saying this because if I say it, I'll have to do it. If you are married or if you have a close family member, someone that you genuinely know loves you, you could pull out this list of characteristics and ask them, how am I doing? What do I need to work on? You could do that, right? Paul has showed us this picture, and he says, you should look like this. And so, if you dare… You could ask that close person in your life, how am I doing? And after that conversation, uh, if you need to call the church for a recommendation for counseling, I'm sure that we can provide uh, that. Um, Yeah, I I didn't know if I was going to say it because now I have to do it. Uh, But I think that's a helpful way. Find someone who loves you, that is genuinely concerned about you, and ask them how you're doing on these items. The last thing Paul shares here about characteristics of the church should be where God's Word is taught, where we admonish one another because we have that relationship with one another. And then he spends a lot of time talking about singing. Isn't this interesting? He talks about singing. We spend a lot of time in worship together singing, and Paul, it's really important to him that we sing hymns. Why do we sing in the church? Why do we sing in the church? I think there are several reasons. One, and maybe one is all we need, is because we're commanded to sing. Did you know that? 
God commands us to sing. In Psalm 100, 1 and 2, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. We are commanded. Psalm 105, 1 and 2, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works. Well, John, those are from the Psalms. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The Bible, the Bible is a musical. It's full of songs. You have singing from Genesis to Revelation. We see numerous examples. Moses and Miriam sang a, an incredible duet right after Pharaoh and his army was destroyed in the Red Sea. They sang this song, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And all of Israel was singing. It was a really popular song. It was all over TikTok at the time as they sang this incredible song of God's mighty act. David famously sang and worshiped Jesus and the disciples at the end of the Last Supper. Do you know what it says they did? It says they sang a hymn and departed. I was thinking about that this week. The last thing that the disciples and Jesus did together before he was crucified was they sang a hymn and then departed. Paul and Silas famously sang a hymn in the jail at Philippi that had incredible consequences. And we will sing. Take a look at Revelation 5. If you want to see what we're going to, if you want to start practicing now, you can take a look at Revelation 5. We are going to sing. So we sing because Jesus and God commanded it, because of the examples. We also sing. We don't always think about this. We had an example earlier in the worship service today, but our theology, what we believe about God, is connected to our doxology, how we worship God. Our theology and our doxology are connected with each other. One of the most famous 20th century theologians, Karl Barth, wrote numerous books, uh, lectured all around the world, and was giving a lecture in the United States. Uh, he uh, was from Germany was giving a lecture in the United States, and he was asked during a Q&A time, what is the most profound theological statement he had ever heard? And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. That song we learn as kids, Bart shared, was the, the most profound theological view he had ever had. Baptists traditionally have not been the most educated denomination around, which is fascinating because they started churches everywhere they went. I'm sorry, started universities everywhere they went, churches too. Um, but a lot of illiteracy. And so the theology in the Baptist tradition oftentimes works out in music. And so when we say, sing things like holy, 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 we are sharing our theology of the Trinity in that. And our belief that what the words of Isaiah say have profound meaning today, too. When we sing, be thou my vision, not only does that, is it kind of a familiar and comfortable song, but listen again to the third verse, riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou 
mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. There's this strong theological challenge to materialism in this familiar song. You are my treasure. You are my riches, which runs counterculture to what we hear Mondays through Saturdays. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? And do you wish that you could see it all made new? asks Andrew Peterson, and of course, inviting the response, we do. There is a theology in these hymns that we sing that is critical for us to understand. We sing because we're commanded to. We sing because it's in Scripture. We sing because it's how we express our theological views of God. We also sing because sometimes we sing maybe not what we believe in the moment, but what we know we should believe. I'll say that again. Sometimes we sing these songs together, not because right at this hot minute I feel that way, but because I want to feel that way. Because I know that how I'm feeling now is not lined up with how God, with the truths that God has presented. There's a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt who's not a believer, he's not writing from this perspective, but he says that so often we think that we, uh, when we want to know our views on an issue, we do a lot of research, we make a decision, and then that's what we believe. And sometimes he says that happens, but usually we have a gut reaction, an emotional reaction, and then we line up our arguments for it behind that emotional reaction. Does that make sense? That our emotions lead instead of follow. And I think sometimes we sing hymns and spiritual songs because we need to get somewhere emotionally so that our mind and spirit can get there too. Several years ago, I was preaching a sermon at a small country church, and the sermon was on the prophet Elisha, Elisha, not Elijah, who had this experience where uh, he wasn't worried when the Syrian armies came around, and God uh, and his servant went out and saw all these armies and came in and said, why aren't you worried? And he said, in response, because those who are with us are greater than those who are out there. And the servant said, I don't know what you're talking about. And Elisha prayed, Lord, let him see what I see. And when the servant walked out of the tent, he saw angels and chariots of fire surrounding them. And so I preached this sermon, and Doug Calhoun, an incredible deacon, came up afterwards. He let everybody else shake my hand and all, and he said, preacher, come over here. So I went over. He said, I got a question for you about this sermon. I said, okay. He said, do you believe that? He said, do you believe that? And in a uh, a rare moment of honesty, I said, sometimes I do. And I read this text, and I preach these sermons, and I, I sing these songs so that I'll believe that more, because the world doesn't teach those things. And so when we come together, we sang a, a, a hymn or a song last week I'd never heard before called The Jesus Way. 
And here's the line in it. If you curse me, then I will bless you. If you hurt me, I will forgive you. And if you hate me, then I will love you. I choose the Jesus way. And so I was singing those words last week and thinking, I I don't know if I can say that. Like, if you hate me, I'll love you. If you curse me, I'll bless you. I want to be like that. And so that's one reason we sing these songs too, is because they show us the way that God wants us to be. And lastly, about singing, I'll simply say this. We sing many songs that I am not familiar with. We sing many songs that I don't know. And I was convicted this week in preparing for this part of the sermon. Psalm 149 says, sing to the Lord an old hymn you really like. (laughs) And I was pleased to find that verse. But that's not what it says. What does it say? Sing to the Lord a? A new song. And so I'm grateful for our worship ministry that does that. Paul concludes by saying, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Christ. And he has offered to us an opportunity to be made new in him, to take on these new creation characteristics that he shows us in these images and these pictures. After the service, we're going to have some folks in uh, the back, right through there, Connection Central. If you have questions or want to better understand how can… You know, how can my life resemble more what those folks look like in Colossae than what it does? How can God take the brokenness of my life and change it into something beautiful? I'm going to pray, and then our praise team is going to sing a hymn of blessing. We have sung hymns already, some that were familiar. We have sung songs of the Spirit, some new songs that at least I wasn't familiar with, and they're going to sing a psalm over us as a body of believers when I finish praying. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the blessings of the day. We thank you for how your word admonishes and challenges us and ask, Father, for your guidance in all that we do. Lord, we pray that we would take on these characteristics, that we would become more gentle, more humble, more full of gratitude, Because in all these things, we know that we are becoming more and more like you in all that we do. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.